everyone, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shani Reichman, the director of IPF Atid, the Young Professionals Network of Israel Policy Forum. Last month, we hosted the second episode of the IPF Atid mini-series, focusing on climate change, climate security, and how it affects Israelis, Palestinians, and the prospects for a two-state solution. We had the pleasure of speaking with member of Knesset Alon Tal of the Blue and White Party about new climate commitments made by the Bennett government, how climate change presents both problems and prospects for greater cooperation with the Palestinians, and how Israel could be a global climate leader. For the third episode in our climate security mini-series, I wanted to highlight the voices of those in our very own Atidna community who are working on the issues at hand. So I spoke with David Harari, a member of the IPFAT DC chapter steering committee. David has spent five years at NASA, NOAA, I see now that it is pronounced NOAA, and the Pentagon, working on space-based remote sensing satellite programs. Since 2014, David has led the Center for Development and Strategy, DC-based think tank, exploring the nexus of global development, sustainability, and security. We're really excited to be hosting David. Welcome to Israel Policy Pod. Thanks, Shani. And you're not the first person to say NOAA, it's <laughs> NOAA. <laughs> you can pronounce it the Jewish way, Noah. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. Um, I would really like to learn more about your background, even though we know each other, of course, but let's uh, let's let the listeners know. Tell us what you do professionally, how you got involved with climate security, and maybe you can also share a little bit about your relationship with Israel and the IPFT community. Definitely, Shani. I really appreciate the, the question here. So... I currently work at the Pentagon, where I work with the Air Force on readiness. I also uh, work as the executive director of the Center for Development Strategy, and we focus on this nexus of sustainability and security. And I became quite interested in this uh, area of climate security um, back in 2010, uh, when the the breakout of the Syrian Civil War uh, came out. It really caught my attention. With a Syrian family background from Aleppo, I've always had my eyes on the Middle East. Um, but back then in 2010, a number of reports came out that a severe drought in the Middle East that had begun in 2008, that was two to three times more likely because of climate change. And uh, that drought combined with existing scarcities forced the price of wheat to skyrocket. And that that notified me, hey, there's this issue of climate change and it's impacting people on the ground in uh, the places where my family used to live. And I saw that young farmers who could no longer make a living, they were forced to migrate internally uh, from northwestern Syria into cities like Homs, Aleppo, and Damascus. Uh, Unsustainable government practices aggravated poverty and food insecurity even further. And so what broke out were numerous uh, food riots uh, across the Middle East and Africa. And that eventually uh, would become what we refer to now as the Arab Spring. So what we saw was inadequate access to food and water combined with existing economic and social strife led to increased competition and in serious case, eventually conflict. And so the sparks of an unsustainable economy and environment were fanned by a corrupt and inept government. And the resulting fire has resulted in 500,000 people killed and forced over 5 million people into refugee status. So the security implications of climate change are often very complex. They're varied, but they're also pretty real. And that's what got me interested in this issue of climate security in the first place. This issue is especially relevant to Israel 
which has had its own conflicts over resources like agricultural land, water, and minerals. And I think that over the next 20, 30, 40 years, uh, these issues are going to crop up uh, time and time again and get worse. And so we need to be very focused on this issue that is climate change. So how does sustainability relate to national security issues? And you touched upon this a, a bit in the Syria context, but tell us how environmental security affects the breakout of violence and conflict. Yeah, so the underlying reasons for a conflict are often very uh, complex. When you look at the foundational aspects of it, it usually has to do with some kind of unsustainable balance of resource allocation, as well as access to resources. So in my mind, sustainability and security are really two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Both terms, security and sustainability, imply long-term homeostasis for a community of organisms. In this case, that means society as, as a whole. Why don't you share about how the environment played a role in conflict in the Middle East specifically? So how, um, how has it played a role in Israel's own history of war? And if there are other countries in the region who've had a similar experience, you know, we talk about um, drought, which is a water insecurity is obviously a big issue in the Israel context and a lot of other issues and how they contribute to the conflicts that we see there. Absolutely. Now, the environment has always played a major role in war and conflict uh, throughout humanity and often by the scarcity of resources in particular. The lack of adequate food, water, shelter, and energy can really drive competition over those resources between different groups. Now, we see in an era of climate change that such scarcities are likely to increase over the next several decades. Climate is often a baseline foundational aspect of ecological systems and how our economy, trade, and society are shaped. A rapidly changing climate means that foundation will break like tectonic plates violently crashing into one another. The resulting earthquakes will ripple through societies and provide a feeding ground for conflict and war to break out. In a society and economy that is out of balance from its natural environment, it's really destined for chaos. The solution to our long-term security challenges is therefore managing these complex systems in a way that is more sustainable. Sustainability, in my view, is the answer to these issues. Now, major hydrological uh, and hydropolitical uh, events have impacted the Jordan River Basin uh, since the Ottoman Empire in 1299. Water allocation has also been an element of tension uh, between Levantine countries for the last 80 plus years. Uh, scarcity of water in the Levant has helped push conflict between Israel, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, its neighbors uh, since independence in 1948. One example of this was the War Over Water. In January 1964, uh, Syria and Lebanon in particular convened to cut Israel's national water carrier supply by 35%. Israel reported 98 instances of encroachment by Syria between December 1962 and August 1963. These clashes eventually resulted in Israel's destruction of Arab heavy earth-moving machines that were used for the diversion plan. And these initial conflicts over water contributed to the fully-fledged six-day war that would break out just a few years later in 1967. Do you think analysts and political leaders across the Middle East are aware of the importance of climate security? And do historians pinpoint um, these climate change issues when they think about the context around those wars? Or is it something that flies under the radar? I think there are a number of analysts and a number of different groups uh, civil society organizations uh, that that think about and talk about these issues. 
um, but it's not systemic. It's not being talked about and discussed enough uh, throughout intelligence communities, throughout governments. Um, and, and really that is, that is necessary in this time of climate change. Uh, we're already in an era of climate change right now and the impacts are being seen. And the fact of the matter is that climate is having a drastic impact on geopolitical events currently right now. And that means that every analyst needs to be able to take into account um, how climate might impact uh, current events. So why don't you tell us a little more about that, right? We're fast forward to today. What are the consequences of climate change for the Levant region, especially Israel, of course, because that's what we talk about mostly here. But what are the risks that we're seeing today? And maybe there's some room to share opportunities as well. Um, we have spoken on this podcast with uh, with some folks working in the Israel space on climate change, and they're really doing tremendous work around it. They're, they believe there's opportunity for positive change, but I'm curious uh, what you, who's a, a little bit more um, maybe far removed uh, from, you know, the internal politics there, what you see um, as going on in the opportunity space and also the risk space. Yeah, I see the risk of similar conflicts and skirmishes along the same borders as um, really growing, again, with climate change. Um, you know, water allocation plans for the Levant region have, have been proposed many times before, such as the Johnson Water Allocation Plan of 1955, but all of those plans have really failed to be ratified by governments. Um, moreover, historical and political instability in the region has hindered the possibility for any basin-wide agreement on water for uh, the Jordan River Basin. Um, and so what it, what it comes down to is that uh, the, the Levant region uh, lacks sufficient water and climate change is really all about water. Um, historically, about 80% of Israel's water came from the north, particularly from the upper Jordan River Basin. Uh, however, climate change has already decreased precipitation significantly. And this has forced Israel to turn to desalination plants. So today, Israel gets about 70% of its domestic water from the sea. And by 2050, Israel hopes to have 100% of its domestic water supplies come from those desalination plants. Uh, at the same time, though, you see in Syria, for example, um, Syrians have 40% less drinking water available than just 10 years ago. And that's been impacted by both the civil war as well as by drought that is driven by climate change. Similarly, across the border from Syria, 70% of Lebanon's population faces critical water shortages. And evapotranspiration rates, that is the rate of, uh, of water evaporating into the atmosphere, um, those rates are being shown to increase with climate change. So the region is now more susceptible than ever to longstanding drought, water shortages, and crop failure because of climate change. And so climate change is absolutely driving an increased risk and tension over scarce water resources. And the picture that I'm trying to paint here is one that, you know, Israel has sufficient water resources largely because of those desalination plants and these springs, uh, yet its neighbors are water insecure. And so that also drives some opportunity for increased cooperation. And we particularly see that with Jordan and Israel. And so, you know, Gaidon uh, Bromberg noted in your first uh, climate security podcast episode that just this past November, Jordan and Israel signed a breakthrough water for energy deal that will ease the impact of climate change on both countries. And so under the deal, the UAE will set up a solar power plant in Jordan that will produce 600 megawatts of solar energy to be exported nearly to Israel 
at a price of $180 million. And the proceeds will be shared between UAE and Jordan. Israel, on its part, will send 200 million cubic meters of desalinated water back to Jordan. And that's great. That is great to, to see. So climate change might not just be a force for greater conflict and, and war, but also a force for greater cooperation. Uh, and we see that with Jordan and Israel. If we're identifying climate security as a national security issue, would that make it fond of the purview of the IDF in Israel? Absolutely. And the Israeli Defense Forces actually just recently began examining how to incorporate the dangers of climate change into its own threat assessments. Uh, the Army's Strategy Division is now working with counterparts in the IDF's planning unit to examine the possibility of a climate-related work plan and the creation of a special unit. And these two divisions are also working a little bit with the Environment Ministry's Climate Change Preparedness Directorate. Um, in a recent article, uh, former IDF Chief of Staff Gadi Azenkot told the Institute for National Security Studies, INSS, that climate change was not discussed and not taken seriously enough by the IDF. That is unlike the U.S. Department of Defense, which has published reports on the effects of climate change in the military's readiness, performance, resilience, and mission requirements since really the late 90s. At the same time, the effects of climate change on Israel's national security will arguably be far worse for Israel than the United States. Israel, unlike the United States, is largely a desert country with scarce natural resources, namely water and agricultural land. And global climate change models, GCMs, predict the Middle East will experience greater frequency and worsening magnitudes of drought and heat waves. Israel's own neighbors, for example, such as Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt, they'll experience increased risk for a state collapse and internal instability without adequate water and food resources. Combined with pre-existing social, economic, and political unrest in these countries, climate change is making a tough situation in the Middle East even worse. Israel's national security and defense apparatus must make sure that the country is prepared for this risk. You spoke a little bit about the urgency around climate security issues in Israel, potentially compared to the United States, but what is the U.S. military doing? Are they also um, viewing climate change as a national security issue, and are they working hard to address it, similar to how the Israelis seem to be doing? Absolutely. At the turn of the century, there began to be recognition that there was a nexus between climate change and national security in the United States government. The risks of climate change and national security um, have really been examined since the early days of the George W. Bush administration. Uh, the very first report on the department from the Department of Defense in 2003 uh, identified the national security implications from the abrupt effects of climate change. And in 2007, the nation's leading retired military officers got together on the CNA Military Advisory Board and released a report on national security, the threat from climate change. These are former three-star and four-star admirals and generals talking about the threat multiplier for instability that is climate change. That rising seas, rising temperatures, floods, increasing unpredictability of extreme weather events contribute to political instability. In 2008, a report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence discussed the consequences of climate change, um, as well as inter and more likely intrastate conflicts. And in 2010, the Quadrennial Defense Review, uh, that's the Pentagon's bedrock strategic document, for the first time discussed climate change as an accelerant to instability. So we now see that these reports frequently come out from DOD, and DOD is taking this issue very seriously and has also done so for quite some time. Just briefly taking it back to the Israeli-Palestinian issue, 
How has water sort of triggered conflict between Israel and the Palestinians? I know you wrote a piece a little while ago back when there was annexation of parts of the West Bank on the table in Israel about um, what the about what the division of water looks like um, in areas A, B, and C. So I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit more about um, how water in particular plays into that conflict and how Palestinians experience, how they experience control over their territory by way of control of the water supply, if at all. Yeah, the water issue in Israel and the West Bank in particular is quite complex because it is so intermingled with, with the land, with settlements, uh, with, with policy that is outdated and, and quite cumbersome to go through. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, Israel controls uh, the, the vast majority of water uh, resources, uh, groundwater resources uh, in the West Bank. And that has contributed to um, a, a restricting, tightening of water access for Palestinians. And that contributes to lowered access to agricultural uh, productivity and agricultural land. Um, that contributes to therefore lowered economic viability of uh, folks in the West Bank, Palestinians in the West Bank. And uh, this doesn't contribute to a, a stable and, and sustainable um, uh, outlook between Israelis and Palestinians. Now on to your field of expertise. Tell us what emerging technologies will help Israel and its neighboring countries manage these threats, since I know you work on satellites and, and all sorts of uh, technological devices that can mitigate the impacts of climate change. So, yeah, so I, I really believe that the emergence of these new technologies, such as artificial intelligence, uh, incredible capabilities from new satellites uh, that are coming out from NASA, from NOAA, from the Department of Defense, um, and as well as advanced computing technologies, uh, may soon provide governments with a greater capacity than ever before to mitigate and respond to resource shortages before riots, civil unrest, and political instability break out. So Earth observation and remote sensing data in particular is allowing scientists and meteorologists to model and forecast with a pretty high degree of accuracy how atmospheric land and water conditions may shift with climate change. So combining that really accurate data with precise economic and geopolitical information can yield really interesting insights on how countries may respond to and adapt to a changing climate, both externally as well as internally. So which countries are actually using these technologies and... Um... How are they? How are they using them to help mitigate the crisis they're facing? That's a great question. You know, the United States, the European Union, uh, countries across really the the globe, uh, African countries, Middle Eastern countries, um, uh, Pacific countries that are uh, you know small island nations, for example, um, they're all using the wide assortment of data that is now coming down from uh, satellites that are often procured and and developed by agencies in the United States and, and Europe, such as NASA, such as uh, NOAA, the National Ocean Economic Service Administration. Much of this data is actually free of use and fully available and is open source. And so it's a fantastic opportunity for scientists across the globe to be able to take this data down, combine it with economic, geopolitical, 
data as well to be able to, you know, provide some insights on how uh, various different countries uh, may again respond to and adapt uh, to a changing climate. And so, it's uh, it's really incredible time to be able to see uh, these new sensors, these new tools, uh, GIS capabilities, and see them be used um, towards towards effective means of policymaking, uh, doing business, for example, trade. Um, it's, it's really incredible time. That's wonderful. And what countries would you say are kind of missing the boat? Are there countries out there that are really going to suffer because they are not caught up to speed with these technologies because they aren't aware of the link between climate security and climate change yet? Who's sort of getting left behind in all of this? The, the main challenge is the know-how and the understanding of how to bring this data that is, again, widely available and free of use and open source, um, but being able to actually bring that data down and interpret it, analyze it, assess it in uh, GIS, geographic information systems, that is a real challenge. And that is something that, uh, you know, I think universities, academia can focus a lot uh, harder on, a lot more on is the uh, uptake and use of this incredible wide around wide uh, amount of data um, and actually being able to to interpret it and use it in a, in a policy making way um, and so yeah the, the the key challenge that i see for countries is is with human capital there um, particularly around this you know satellite imagery and, and data now this is on the monitoring and, and forecasting side of things at the same time, we have a pretty good understanding of how sustainable agriculture, for example, and sustainability practices in large can increase resilience and, and mitigate the effects of climate change. Because whether we like it or not, climate change is already here and it's going to get worse. And yeah, I say that, you know, with the, with the caveat that, you know, we're we can do so much in terms of sustainability, in terms of mitigating our footprint, for example, uh, mitigating our carbon output. And I think those are all things that we need to do. Um, at the same time, we know that climate change is coming and it's coming fast and it's already here. And so countries need to deal with those very real consequences of climate change. And that means that implementing sustainability um, and implementing resilience options uh, is is really required right now. And it's not something that countries can just plan for and make commitments for, you know, by 2050, by 2030. They need to start implementing these resilience measures uh, right now. As we wrap up, I want to thank Jacob Gilman, our communications director who produces this podcast, Max Webb, our national organizing fellow who also did a lot of research for this podcast, and all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast itself and the IPF at Seed program. We really appreciate you and all of our listeners. 